The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Recently, we've had a chance to speak with the directors of several of Netflix's Emmy-nominated documentaries. We talked to Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, Cootie Simmons and Chike Oza told us about the making of Genius, a Kanye trilogy, and most recently, Felicity Morris gave us the backstory to the Tinder swindler. Check out these conversations in our feed and watch these documentaries, now available on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Bianca Stichter, director of Three Minutes, A Lengthening. The film had its world premiere at the 2021 Venice Film Festival and went on to screen at the Toronto International Film Festival, Telluride, Sundance, and many other festivals. Bianca Stichter is an historian and cultural critic. She made the short film essays Three Minutes, 13 Minutes, 30 Minutes, and I Kiss This Letter, Farewell Letters from Amsterdamers. She's associate producer of Steve McQueen's feature films, 12 Years a Slave and Widows. In 2019, she published the book Atlas of an Occupied City, Amsterdam, 1940 to 1945. Three Minutes, a Lengthening is her feature documentary debut. The film is inspired by the book by Glenn Kurtz called Three Minutes in Poland. And in this book, Glenn describes how he stumbled upon an old family home movie stored in his parents' closet in Florida. And it turned out that this movie was footage shot by his grandfather, David Kurtz, on a grand tour of Europe that he took with his wife and a couple of friends in 1938. You know, nothing remarkable there, except that they made this detour to David Kurtz's hometown of Nischelsk, a village in Poland. And the footage he shot there turns out to be very historically important because it's some of the only color footage and only footage shot in a village like that prior to the Holocaust. So within these brief three minutes, that's the approximate length of this footage, you see daily life of this Jewish community in Poland. And the footage becomes a time capsule. And in fact, time and timing play a key role in Bianca Stichter's film. The people in this village had no way of knowing that a little bit more than a year later, the Nazis would invade Poland, come into their village, round up all the Jews, and begin the process of deportation and killing that would happen across Europe throughout the years of the Holocaust. They're just living their normal lives. And it's amazing to watch, especially all the young people jumping up and down, waving in front of David Kurtz's camera. It's all fun. They've probably never seen somebody with a home movie camera. So there's a playfulness to the film that is really tragic and horrifying from our own perspective of hindsight. It's incredible how Bianca manages to take this three minutes of footage and extend it or lengthen it, as her title suggests, and to discover so many things in the footage and managed to bring us into that process, the process of seeing things with fresh eyes. I really felt like I was kind of rediscovering the aesthetics and the history of cinema as I was scouring each frame, looking for meaning and even some signs of hope. There were very few survivors of the Holocaust in Nashelsk, but there were a few, and Glenn Kurtz did manage to find them and interview them for his book, and Bianca interviews a couple of them as well. It's a cliche to say about the Holocaust, we must never forget, but what does an act of remembering look like? And what makes that act itself memorable? 
a great film, and in this case, two films, the 1938 original footage and now Bianca Stichter's film, show us what that act of remembering looks like and forever memorializes these people, the life of their community, and the individuals that we discover in these frames. Three Minutes of Lengthening is distributed theatrically by Super LTD and is now screening in New York and Los Angeles. It opens nationwide in select theaters starting on August 26th. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Bianca Stichter, director of Three Minutes of Lengthening. Bianca Stichter, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you so much. Can you give us a brief logline of the film? Three Minutes to Lengthening examines a whole movie shot in 1938 in the Jewish town in Poland and tries to delay its ending. It's an essay about film, history, and memory. Thank you. So your film is about what you describe as three minutes of life taken out of the flow of time by David Kurtz. Yes. When did you first encounter the approximately three minutes of footage that comprises the film that David Kurtz shot? Yeah, end of 2014, so quite a while ago, I was scrolling on Facebook and I saw a post called Three Minutes in Poland. And I found it a very intriguing title, The Country, Three Minutes for this. So I clicked on it and it turned out to be about a book written by Clint Kurtz about footage that his grandfather, David Kurtz, had shot in 1938 in the town of his birth in Poland. As a child, he had emigrated to the United States, but now he was, let's say, in his 50s and he went back on holiday to Europe. And also, apart from visiting all the usual touristic places in London, Paris, Geneva, he also made a detour to the town of his birth, Nashelles, not so far from Warsaw. So I ordered the book, and in this post it also said that you could watch this footage on the website of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. So I went over there and found the film, clicked on it, and was immediately very uh, taken by it. Because first thing, it is for a large part in color, which is, of course, very rare for that time. We are so used to seeing that part of history in black and white films and photographs. It almost seems like the things also happened in black and white. But here it was in glorious, albeit a bit faded, color, which made it seem much closer and very vivid and vibrant. What else stood out to you about what was in the film? You see all these um, kids are very enthusiastic that there is a camera there. They're trying to stay in the frame. They walk with David Kurtz to, to stay on camera. They wave and look in the lens. And while I was really getting into it, um, then, boom, it was over. Because, you know, three minutes is not that long. And then I immediately had the feeling, wouldn't it be great if you could make it last longer in some way? But I wasn't working as a filmmaker at that time. I had worked for a long time as a film critic for a Dutch newspaper. A few weeks after this happened, the Rotterdam Film Festival had started a program. They asked critics to make a video essay. And they asked me as well. And then I thought, okay, well, what I really would like to do is work with this found footage from 1938. And then they said, okay, go ahead and try. So I contacted Glenn Kurz and worked as an editor for a week. And then we had a 
version of, let's say, 20, 25 minutes. And we presented it in Rotterdam at the festival. And then I still, I had the feeling, well, there's more to it still. I'm not ready with this. So we looked for a producer who wanted to take this on and found Floor Onrust. And then I worked with another editor, Katerina Bartena, and I went to Achelles, to Detroit, and did some more research. And then took another five years to put it all together. Such is the story of many documentary filmmakers. And then five years went by. Yeah. When did you make the key decision to show no images other than the actual three minutes or so of footage of David Kurtz's film or images you took from that film? That was the idea to start with. I knew that was how I wanted to do it immediately. And, you know, sometimes you have an idea and you start working on it and then hmm, it turns out not to have been such a strong idea and you have to change it while you go along. But this idea stayed strong. And I would just say, just because the film only relies on this footage for its raw material doesn't mean that it's not very diverse visually. You know, (laughs) footage is run forwards, backwards, sped up, slowed down, frozen, shots are blown up in size. These kind of techniques can certainly be fun, maybe not the right word, but creatively satisfying to experiment with, but also laborious. And you did mention it took five years to make the film. But as someone who is primarily a writer and historian, critic, you know, who works with words, what was your artistic practice like working with these images and sounds? Well, in a way, it was less different from writing than I had expected, because still it's a time-based medium, just like writing. So the same kind of rules or rules you can break, but the same kind of principles apply of beginning, ending, middle, not necessarily in that order, a certain rhythm to it. How do you distribute the information you want to convey? Where do you need to breathe? You know, that sort of thing was much more the same than I had expected. But of course, now you had a lot of different tools to work with. You had images, you had sound, you had music, So it was a riveting to do for me. I wanted to ask a question of clarification about time, which is I did go to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum Mm -hmm. website. You can still find David Kurtz's footage there. And also all the other footage he took of the other places he visited. So that other footage is also there because I didn't see that. I was going to ask you later, but I'll ask you now if you had watched that other footage And if the way he shot those other towns, because he was really going there as a tourist, was detectably any different than the way he shot the footage at Neshelsk? Yes, Um, quite different because in the other places, we really feel, of course, he films here as a tourist because he left his town as a a young child. But the other parts are much more in that home movie travel uh, thing, uh, a person standing in front of a monument, building, lake, that sort of uh, thing. And he records some of the scenery, but the Nashelle thing, the other because he travels other people with his wife and two friends and a sister of his friend, Mr. Melina. So in the other footage, they are much more prominent than in the Nashelle's footage. You see much more other people up close. And sometimes it's even as if he wants to film buildings and so on. But these people, because it's really a novelty to have a camera. Michelle's was not a place tourists visited. It was really something special. 
it's quite different from the rest of the footage. Interesting. You mentioned before briefly about going to Detroit and going to Nichelles. What research did you do on your own to learn about the events in Nichelles in 1938 and the world around the film shot by David Kurtz? Well, most research was thankfully already done by Glenn Kurtz for his uh, book, Three Minutes in Poland. And the research I tried to add where, let's say, the first urge you have with this is, of course, you want to know who the people are. And if that is very difficult, you start to look for other things in the frame. And also because footage is so rare and so precious that we have it, everything about it starts to feel like a discovery or a revelation. So I went at everything. For instance, we wanted to know what the trees you see on the on the square, what kind of trees are they. So then we asked botanists and botanical gardens in Poland what they thought, what kind of trees it were. And at a certain moment, there's a red flower in a windowsill. And for days, we tried different specialists to determine what flower is it then. But no one wanted to say because the images were too vague to say with any certainty what kind of flower it was. I thought if we have a lip reader who can lip read in Yiddish, we can know what these people are saying. So then first it took quite a while to find a lip reader who could speak Yiddish. And then in the end, we found two, but also here they both said that the fragments are too short or too fake to say what they said. In a way, that kind of absence of real information, then you have to be a bit more creative. So then I thought, okay, there are words in any conversation that you can predict that will be said. You said to me, uh, hello, and how are you? And that sort of thing. We, we, we will use the words film and Poland and so on. So then I made a kind of abstract version of conversation with the words that you are quite certain that they have been said there and then in that languages, Polish, Yiddish, and English that probably were spoke by the people we see. So that's the way I went about it a bit. And for instance, in the book, one of the survivors who doesn't appear in the film, but was also from Nachelles and managed to escape, he remembered that in a restaurant, they listened to the BBC World Service and would dance to the music that was broadcast. And he mentioned Bert Ambrose and his orchestra. And then you can look up the radio times for the BBC still exists. And then you see, yeah, Bert Ambrose was performing there for the radio. And then you think, okay, what song? And then you find a song. It's called Chasing Shadows, which is, of course, in this context, kind of like weirdly appropriate. So then you cannot be certain that this particular song was heard in Nashels, but let's say 85% certain that actually happened. So then you can suddenly put those sounds to the images taken there and edit them in such a way that it seems as if the people are dancing. I think because you're focusing on this three-minute strip of film, watching the film and probably making the film too, becomes about the act of seeing and discovering, as you've talked about, starting with the uninterrupted flow of the three minutes of film that make up the beginning of your film, but also throughout. I feel like we're really being encouraged to look at things with fresh eyes, in a sense to rediscover not just the content, but the medium of film itself. Absolutely. While I was working on it, I had, let's say, two kind of 
path or tracks I wanted to explore. One was just the fact of showing to let it be on the screen, to let it breathe so that you really can become acquainted with it and hopefully in such an open way that you can also as a viewer direct your own gaze and you can freely wander between the images and yeah also for me it was very much a kind of probing of the differences between seeing something and reading about something how does that work what are the the differences how do you get information and is information that is written always more important than what you actually see or does something that you see have other qualities that in most history books are you know not really taken on board and then the other side was let's extract as much information from the celluloid as we possibly can so that's why I looked at everything in the frame from what trees are there to what birds and all that kind of things. And in the end, you know, because people are more acquainted then with the material you have seen, so you can use it in different ways for different stories. For instance, at the really enters the story of another survivor, Mr. Lubinetsky, who manages to get his girlfriend from the synagogue where she was detained. And then you can use the material, because we've seen it so often, as a kind of illustration for this story. Yeah, that's interesting, because we do reassess what we've already seen once we get more information. Exactly. You mentioned this earlier, and one of the most fascinating things about the footage is that we're looking at the people of Nashelsk, who are looking at the camera, which is looking mm -hmm. at them. And I don't think it would have been the same film if the people were just observed, you know, going about their daily business and didn't look back into the camera lens. How significant is it that a good amount of the film is people, especially young people, looking into the camera? Well, I think that is one of the things that, let's say, you get the feeling because they are really looking at the camera, that they want to be seen. It's a very active thing on their part. They really want to be seen. And of course, they don't necessarily want to be seen by us. But by looking, in a sense, you get the feeling that you're answering that want. But at the same time, you feel very close. And this is, of course, goes for a lot of old films and photographs. The ravine of time and history is separating us forever. So there's that that feeling of being very close, but at the same time knowing it's an illusion that makes the viewing also a kind of um, effort in frustration. And of course, your first impulse is you want to shout at these people because they don't know what is going to happen. And in this sense, it's also a film about knowledge, of course, in hindsight. We know what is going to happen. They do absolutely not know what's going to happen. So that puts the enormous pressure on the images, of course. Yeah, that's an interesting notion, the idea of pressure on the images and certainly an urgency that we bring to it, urgency that cannot be fulfilled in any kind of meaningful way. Oh. We can't do anything about it. No, in a way, I always have to remember that thing about the first film showing of the Lumiere brothers in Paris that the train was coming at people and people backed off because they thought the train was going to drive onto them. I don't know if it's, that's a myth. It's a beautiful story. And here I have the same thing. You want to engage so much with the people you see, but you just, you cannot. 
I was going to mention the, the Lumiere film because it definitely came to mind for me as I was watching your film. And also it made me think this is shot in 1938. It's about 40 years later after the Lumiere brothers film. But these people probably had not had cinema come to their town, but I'm not sure. What do you think? Yes, there was a cinema in the town in 1938. And actually we went to Nashelles to show the film. And we showed it in this cinema that still exists, which was a very strange circle to have made. And some survivors also remembered what film they saw in that cinema. Leslie Klodek, the same guy from the Bert Ambrose music, he remembered seeing a film with Marlene Dietrich. I think it was Morocco. So they had access to a cinema. They probably had seen a movie, if not that movie, another movie. But do you think they had seen somebody with this Kodak home movie camera come to town before? I mean, I guess I'm asking you to speculate, but what was your Um, sense in doing research of how novel the idea was of somebody shooting this kind of travelogue footage? Obviously, there are from other places in Poland and from Warsaw, there's much more footage but this is a kind of a small town that tourists would not visit in those days. So I cannot say it didn't happen before, but it would not have happened often, let's say. It could be possible that for the children, it was the first time they saw someone with a movie camera. But this is speculation. Let's talk a bit about Glenn Kurtz. He's a kind of detective, as are you, using whatever clues he can find to identify first the town where the footage is shot and then as many of the people in the footage as he can. It's interesting that the first clue is that of the lion carved into the upper panel of the synagogue door. As Morris Chandler, one of the few survivors of this town, tells us several times, this is a very religious Jewish community. Uh And it makes sense that the synagogue would be the building that has some kind of marker that Glenn could rely upon here. It made me think, though, what if the lion hadn't been there? What do you think would have been the next clue in trying to figure out where this was shot? Yeah, the lion is a bit the Eiffel Tower of myself in this film. Good question, because it was actually more difficult than you would think to pinpoint the exact location of the film. Glenn and later I, we walked there with print out from the footage to try to think, was it here or was it there? Because sometimes the buildings are still there, but for instance, a balcony has disappeared or has been added. That's a door is in a different place. So only when an old photograph turned up, it was possible to exactly pinpoint the location. So if that lion had not been there, maybe the shape of the building, although Nashel used to have a beautiful wooden synagogue, which was quite famous, but that building was torn down in 1880. And then later we got this brick building in its place. So yeah, thank God there was a lion. It was interesting to, to see what kind of information an image can give you and what not, that you cannot know from only seeing an image except when the Eiffel Tower or the Big Ben or whatever is on it, where you are. You can't see that in the picture. But you can, for instance, see what time of day it is. If you have a shadow, you can establish that. So that for me was kind of, oh, where do you need 
context, words to interpret something? What can you actually learn from the image? Also, we looked at the weather, the clouds, and then we went to the newspapers at that time to see the weather forecast. So you could know what kind of weather it was on that day, the 4th of August, 1938. I'm curious about Glenn's relationship to the footage. You know, this relationship actually reminded me a bit of Alexandra Zapruder's book about her grandfather, okay. Abraham, set out to shoot home movie footage of President Kennedy's trip to Dallas and ended up inadvertently shooting the most important piece of documentary evidence of the president's assassination. She wrote about how the Zapruder film, the famous film, ended up becoming a huge factor in her family's own history. And so, you know, the contexts are very different, of course, with Glenn and his grandfather's footage versus the Zapruder film. But, you know, in both cases, the grandchild of the person who shot the footage comes to grips with what that footage means, not only in historical context, but in the context of the family's history as well. What can you tell us about how Glenn's discovery of the footage may have changed the Kurtz's relationship to their own history? I think not so much their own history, because... The grandfather emigrated already as a young child. And as far as I know, there were no direct relatives left in Nashelsk in 1938. So in that sense, it's also a removed history. What happened is that primarily for the research located a lot of survivors, but also descendants of the Jewish inhabitants of Nashelsk. And that became a whole kind of quite large group of people, kind of community. A lot of people went to visit Nashelsk over the years. Location of the Jewish cemetery is still there on the outskirts of town. The Germans took away the stones, some people say, to pave the runway of a nearby uh, airfield. Every year, a group of people go back there to maintain the cemetery. This year, when we were there in May to show the film, there was also a large group of descendants from uh, Jewish inhabitants of Nashels. And there was a monument placed in front of the Jewish cemetery, which also contains windows of the synagogue that were found quite recently. As the synagogue was demolished after the war, and of course there was a time of scarcity, also of building materials, so the stones and everything was reused by uh, people in the town. Clan feels, I think, a very big responsibility for the people in the film and for all the Jewish inhabitants of Nashels and their descendants, so that became a kind of community. So those were essentially responses to his book and the footage? Yes. In terms of memorials, there's a section in the film, it's one of the most striking, I think, in which you call through all the footage of all the people and you pull out, I think, 150 faces and you blow them up and each one becomes a portrait. Some are blurry, some are clear, but they all have a place. And then they together form this almost mosaic. And it becomes, I think, your memorial to the mm -hmm. people of Neshelsk. Can you talk about your inspiration for that sequence? Usually more and more, certainly after the Vietnam monument in Washington. These kind of monuments that commemorate people are names carved in stone or in bronze or something like that. In Yad Vashem, you also have this hall of names. But in this case, we didn't have names. We had visual, we had faces. So I thought, I want to do something 
make a kind of memorial that stresses the individuality of all the people we see. Lots of times when you see or hear about the Holocaust, it becomes an abstraction. And here you can see that it actually happens to people, young, old, looking at you or looking away or, you know, all individuals. We worked with a wonderful special effects person. And when I asked him, can you do this? The first time he came back with only 40 faces. And I said, where is everyone? Yeah, they were not in focus and very blurry. And then I said, for this, that's not the point. However blurry, this could be the last trace or the only trace we have of someone. So we're going to show that doesn't matter if it's fake. We will show everything that can work as a portrait we have to show. And I hope that for the viewer, the whole film, but especially this part, will feel as if by watching you're partaking in the creation of a memorial. I know I felt that way. And as I was watching it, I did think of it as the opposite of the very memorial you mentioned, the Vietnam Memorial and other war memorials where names are listed. So this was your own, I think, unique and really powerful version of a suitable memorial for these people. So let's talk about December 3rd, 1939. That's the date when the abuse, torture, and deportation of the Jews of Nashels began. Obviously, to explain these events, you have to go beyond David Kurtz's footage, which was shot the year before. These events, I believe, are depicted in the film primarily through two testimonials. And then visually, I think I recall you show a long, slow zoom into a shot from the town square where people were forced to assemble. Can you talk about your creative and historical approach to that sequence? The deportation of the Jewish people of Nashelsk is described in an eyewitness report that was found in the Ringelblum archives. The Ringelblum archives are the work of Emanuel Ringelblum, who was in the ghetto in Warsaw and thought we have to document what is happening. And he collected reports from all over Poland and from the Warsaw ghetto. They were stored in metal cans and milk cans and buried in the ghetto. And after the war, they were dug up. And this testimony about Nashelsk is one of those eyewitness reports. And I thought, okay, it's quite long. But as we are engaging with this story and these people, it felt wrong to cut it. I wanted to let you hear the whole testimony with all the details of it. Of course, there are no images of it, although in the report it says that the Germans who are harassing people on the square, cutting their beers, that sort of thing, that they are also taking pictures. So who knows, somewhere in an attic in Hamburg or Bremen, there are still pictures of what the Germans are doing to the Jews in Nashelles, but they haven't been found. From other towns, there are these kind of pictures. And then I thought, okay, if we're going to hear this whole testimony, what can we show? There's actually only one image of the square that connects us to the day one and a half years later. And I thought, okay, we will just show that and slowly zoom in. And also then by doing that, making you aware of the absence of the images. You hear about it, but we can't show it. And there you have again that thing, what is recorded, what is not recorded. And, and I hope that makes you think 
about the difference in the way history is coming to us, whether in words or in image. I don't know if this is quite the right way to describe it, but I would say for most of the film, your approach is kind of hands off. You want us to discover things in the footage. You may mm -hmm. guide us in certain ways to mm -hmm. look at certain things or consider certain aspects, but we're put in a position, I think, of being active viewers rather than passive. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of times, though, when your narrator comes in and she's directly addressing us. One is when she says, we did process this footage and you do a split screen and you show us mm -hmm. the processed versus the unprocessed. And we thought maybe it would make you closer to the footage. And then another time the narrator says, we created a 3D model of the town square. And then you ask the audience about mm -hmm. that action. Can you talk about how the narrator, who I assume is kind of a stand-in for you, the filmmaker, mm -hmm. takes on a direct role in those cases? Yeah, for me, as you say, I wanted to be really an open film so that you, as a viewer, are watching it not passively, but actively and can make your own choices almost, but of course there's guidance. And I want it to be a journey of discovery for the viewer, but also for the filmmaker. So that the distance between those two roles is quite small. Because for me, it was also, I'm not an expert. So I wanted to show that whole process of discovering things and thinking about them and share it with the audience. You talked about watching the three-minute film for the first time and what your experience was like. Now that you've seen the film probably hundreds of times, what do you see now? Well, for me, it was a really a, a discovery is when you concentrate on something small, how much it then can yield. Three minutes become a whole, whole world almost. So it's really this uh, microcosmos, macrocosmos uh, Idea. So that was for me an eye-opener that that really worked like this. And when I now watch the film, I still discover new things because sometimes the main action is in front, but there's also some people on, in the background. So there's a small child running, things like that. And still, I sometimes see something that I haven't really concentrated on before. And it also is very much a question of, yeah, what do you see and how is that influenced by what you know. For instance, the other day, a friend of mine who is a dentist watched the movie and she said, yes, I see um, there's a boy there with a gap between his teeth. And that is a very, it's, I forgot the name now, that is a very hereditary condition. And a meter further, there is a woman standing who also has this gap between her teeth. So it's very probable that she is his mother. And that was, of course, because I don't know anything about teeth, so I didn't concentrate on that. So what you know influences very much what you see and what that then can bring in um, information. So I don't think we found everything there is to find. Other people with different skill sets and new technology could maybe lead to more identifications in the future. I'm sure they will. And I think your story about the dentist is an indication that watching the film with other people is an important act. And I would urge people to go to see the film in a theater. It's opening on August 19th in New York and LA and see it with other people and talk to the people around you about what they see. One image that 
I think will always stay with me is that of the child running away from the camera in one of the scenes. And you, I think, call attention to that by showing it again. And yes. I just, for me, you know, that's a haunting image and I can't help but hope that that child got away. I want to thank you so much for sitting down with me today and talking about the film, what we see, what we don't see, and your process of discovery. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Finally, if you can tell us what's up next for you. While I was working on the film, I was also working on a book called Atlas of an Occupied City, Amsterdam, 1940-1945. It's set up as a kind of guidebook that tells you neighborhood by neighborhood, street by street, house by house, and sometimes even floor by floor, what happened there during the war. And that book is now also turned into a documentary, which I'm not directing, but my husband, Steve McQueen, is directing that. But there I'm the writer, let's say. Yeah. Well, that's definitely a film that I am looking forward to seeing, and I look forward to reading your book. Unfortunately, at the moment, it's only available in Dutch. Any publishers out there, we need an English translation of Bianca's Atlas. <laughs> but the film will be in English. Do you have a recommendation for a documentary, Hidden Gem, a film that maybe doesn't get a huge amount of recognition, but you'd like to put the spotlight on? Yeah, it's a bit more known maybe in art circles, at least in my country, the Netherlands, but I would like to mention Joseph Cornell's Rose Hobart from 1936. Joseph Cornell was a surrealist artist best known for kind of boxes that he made. But he also made this film about the actress Rose Hobart. And he took a movie that she appeared in and cut out almost all the images where she wasn't visible and then re-edited as this kind of film about her and put some other images from other movies and then tinted it all blue. So it's also a film that makes use of other films. So that was, let's say, maybe not a direct inspiration, but you know, something that you remember in the back of your mind, like, hey, you can actually do things like this.